Welcome to the Razam Worship Songwriting Podcast, episode 38. I'm Joel Payne from Resound Worship. I'm Sam Hargreaves from Engage Worship. And this is a podcast to equip and inspire grassroots songwriters serving their local church. In this episode, we'll be catching up on recent events, including the Songs for Sunday's launch tour, remembering an event from 500 years ago, and also pinning our theses to the door as we discuss how to write worship songs in the vernacular. Hey Sam, it's a very, it's a special day today. Yes. Halloween. It's my birthday. Oh, oh no. No. No, it's not mine. Neither of those things. Well, it is Halloween. But also, more um, more specifically, it is 500 years to the day since a certain Martin Luther pinned his theses and kicked off, um, kicked off the Reformation. That's exciting. Are you having a party? We always have a party on Reformation Day. Oh, good. Um, it's a, Do you... Do you pin your own theses? We to just the go around door pinning. So it's like pinning your tail to the donkey, but we do <laughs> pin your theses to the door. And I have to be honest; it has never been on my radar before as a day, and it ne- I never knew it was the same day as Halloween. That's weird, isn't it? Mm. Halloween gets a lot more coverage in the supermarkets. It does, yeah. It's, it sells more sweets and stuff, doesn't it? But you can, and this is true in um, in Germany. Certainly, you can get Playmobil Martin Luther. <laughs> I've seen it in the shops. <laughs> it's true. So it's pretty cool. Very well, we're going cool. to talk a lot more about that um, in the podcast. Since we are recording this on the 500th anniversary of that event, we thought it'd be cool to um, to look at that. We've got a special interview lined up with someone who knows a lot more about it than we do. And we're going to think a bit about um, uh, what Luther has taught us, I suppose, what he's given us and how we apply that to our songwriting. Uh, but in the meantime, Great. let's catch up on what we've been up to. Um, Sam, I know one of the things you've been up to. You What's have that? you have run a half marathon PB. Oh yeah, I have run a PB. Thanks, mate, for mentioning that. That's I, right. Uh, I uh, yeah, I've run a couple of half marathons and I've never beaten two hours uh, before. My best was two hours and six minutes. Yeah. So my aim was to come in under just two hours, and I ran my hardest with my buddy John, and we actually got one hour fifty-two, which I was really surprised by. That is fantastic. Uh, Thanks, mate. Did you know you were... Did you just kind of feel like you were on course? Or were you tracking it? Or did you just, just run it and... I I am blissfully ignorant whenever <laughs> I run. I don't take any devices with me. I just have no idea what I'm doing, which drives my wife mad because she's always, like, saying, you know, so what's your time or what's your... You know, and I, I just have no... I, that's the thing about running. I like just being free. Oh. But I knew we were doing good. But I, when I came around the corner, I thought I was going to see, like, 158 or something. Yeah. And they have a little clock as you oh. go through the line. And I was like, what? That is a fantastic so cool. feeling, isn't it? Yep. And I made a good amount of money for a brilliant charity in Luton called Azalea, uh, who work with women in the, the sex industry. So it's just brilliant. Fantastic. What else have you been up to when you've not been training and, and breaking records uh, and so on? We did our whole life worship day in Harrogate, which was mm. terrific. We had over 80 people and... It was a really good vibe, brilliant venue, um, and yeah, it was, went really well. And we've just got one more of those this year, so it's going to be in High Wycombe on the 18th of November. Um, so if you want to catch the Whole Life Worship Saturdays tour, uh, you'll have to get that one this year. Uh, and we've also, I've got coming up the songwriting uh, intensive with Geraldine at LST. Yeah. Um, so that is coming up on the 10th and 11th of September. And I've spotted that we've got a bunch of people booked in from outside LSD, which is great. And there is still some space. Nice. Um, but, you know, it's it's going to be really good. And, and then the other thing we've been doing is uh, on the it's not quite 500 years since the Reformation, but in January, it's going to be 10 years since the beginning of Engage Worship. <laughs> Which will one day Sarah... be spoken of in the same breath. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yes. Sarah and I posted our 39 theses to the door yeah. of Music and Worship Foundation, and they started to employ us. Um, and so, yeah, we, we've launched this kind of guest book thing on our website where people can post greetings or videos or prayers or stories about ways that God has used the resources that we've shared. So we're hoping that that is going to kind of be a way of celebrating that and you know maybe making some money as well 
if people want to support us for the next decade. That's really good. I've had, I've, I mean, I've been on. I've left a, a little post, and um, yeah, I spotted that. Thank you. And I think Engage is a fantastic thing. We 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 use it a lot in my church. Nothing to do with me. My vicar is always popping up with these prayers written by Sam Hargreaves. That's the main thing hey. actually he gets from it. Is your is is your various prayers and responses and things. Um, cool. I've used stuff in small group. I've used loads of different places. So I think it's a really fantastic oh, thank thing. You. And I remember you starting the whole thing, sort of, I suppose, a year or so after we started Resound, a year or two. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then just rapidly overtaking us in both importance and popularity. <laughs> and, <laughs> I don't know about that. And so it has remained. Cool. And then the other thing that I know you've been involved in is so high is the mm-hmm. launch concerts that we did for Songs for Sundays. And I yeah. thought these were... Um, these are actually very significant for me because I think it just just to kind of fill listeners in that if you if you weren't listening before we obviously we have this album that we produced and it was all about songs for sort of liturgical moments in in church signpost moments if you like and so we thought the best way to do it as a concert was actually to teach some of the songs and then to run the whole album as a liturgy so you just went through the songs and slotted them in amongst the other stuff that um the, the, to give them a context so whether it's a talk or prayers or communion and so on um, and we took this to four different places around the UK. Sam, you were with us for the first two. Um, mm. uh, so give us your take on those two, and then I'll I'll give you my take on the last two. Well, I felt like the first two, the, uh, the first one at LST was definitely the most kind of charismatic. We had the most hands in the air. Yes. Um, we had a little bit from a dramatic moment in the middle when the fire alarm went off. Oh, yeah, forgotten uh, that. Yeah. We literally <laughs> but, had to leave the concert and stand in the cold. Yeah. The fire of the Lord had come down and yeah. set the fire alarm off. Uh, but fortunately, it was it was during the br- the coffee breaks. So it was in perfect place because if it had been like in the middle of some you know really heart wrenching song, it would have been yeah. sad. But um, yeah, no, that was that was really fun because people were really up for it. And then the next one, the thing that I thought uh, was really cool about the next one was the um, the talk by Chris. Yeah, uh, I thought he did really well. One of our writers jumped up and did a little um, mini preach, and I thought it was terrific. Cool. And then we, so we went from there to real contrast, actually. So we went from LST, which is a, a theological college and quite a young audience. We went mm. then we went to Emmanuel and Loughborough, which is my church um, and uh, an audience, I guess, which is very used to that kind of song. I mean, partly they you know sing some of the songs that I write if I'm lucky. Yeah. And uh, we then went to um, St. Mary's in Tadcaster, a completely different kind of audience, a, a really old yeah. stone church. We put the, I don't know if you saw this, Sam, we had to put Ben, the drummer, in the side chapel. That was, <laughs> that was his drum room. We literally put him in a room because it had one of those wooden screens with, with holes. So I could sort of three, see him through a hole in the screen. We, we stuck him in there. It, had a really, it was quite oh. good because it was carpeted and stuff and it, it worked quite well. Really well received there. Lovely sound because it's beautiful. It was quite hard to tame the sound, but once you do it. Yeah. Um, but also the, there, I think we found an audience who were much less used to something much less used to in that kind of church, even having a, a music group of that size or something. And so really appreciated in that respect and and interesting as well that and then um st cuthbert's in um fullwood preston um we sold a lot of music books uh, uh, and you yeah. get a sense of the kind of um audience you've got and what was really lovely actually was in um in preston so it took a little while to perfect it i found for me figuring out whether we were leading worship or doing a concert or you know mm. you kind of get you have to get the hang of it don't you and i thought that um Talking through the songs and teaching them, so even by the half time, people were going and buying CDs and music books because they'd heard enough about the project to think, "Wow, yes, this is what my church needs." Even before we'd actually really gone through and sung them all. Um, That's cool. So yeah, but really, good it's encouraging, isn't it, that it works across the different? You know, it worked in a in a more kind of young, charismatic space like we had at LST, but actually, I think it has a real strength in as a sort of crossover project as well for people. You know, we we um, have learned with doing stuff with Engage. We go to a lot of small local churches. And I think if you read the blogs or the forums, you, you know, you would think that the only issues are, you know, should I do the Hillsong song from last year or this year? Um, yeah. You know, should I use six delay pedals on my electric guitar or seven? And, you know, actually you realise that there's a lot of churches that are saying, you know, we actually would like to develop, you know, what we would maybe think of as you know as already we've already been there but actually they're still asking the questions can we use anything but hymns yeah you know can we develop beyond our organ or our choir or whatever and 
Um, so I think this would be a, this is a really good project for those kind of churches who are wanting to cross over a bit. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think maybe as well as a kind of, there can be a sense of being left behind, can't there? I think if you were in on all of this in the 60s and the 70s, when, yeah. when sort of a, a newer form of, of worship was developing, then it might have seemed accessible to you. Mm. But in a sense, it's kind of got gradually... Well, it's just stayed young, hasn't it? I think stylistically and, yeah. and continues to, and in a way, you can get further and further away from it. So you can't actually bridge the, yeah, bridge the gulf. And maybe that's a bit of um, what we've been doing. Um, mm. Well, we look at what one or two. We had some feedback on on the album, um, which has been yep. quite cool. Various bits of correspondence. Um, the well, one of them was just a, an email from Nick, um, and one or two other comments around just just thanking us for our discussion on Good Good Father, um, mm. and. I think that's cool. I mean, I've, I think I've said to you since, I actually found that helpful discussion. I found for myself in trying to uh, think through the qualities of that song, I found myself appreciating it much more than I did, I think, before we discussed it. Um, yeah. Which, yeah, I had a few comments as well. Yeah, which was pretty cool. Um, we had a, a message from Kat on Facebook. Uh, she came to one of the, the gigs and said, I just wanted to say how great the concert was on Friday. It was engaging and interesting. I just think the whole thing, the project, the resources and the songs are just incredible. I think you've done something so unique and so needed. The worship in so many churches will be revolutionised because of Songs for Sunday. It's accessible, easy to sing, contemporary, liturgical, biblical, great sounding. It really is amazing. Thank you. <laughs> well, apparently it's done all right then with her. I think that's pretty kind, isn't it? I, I did ask. Yeah. It wasn't in, actually necessarily intended to be a, a, a quote for the world, but I did say to Kat, Kat do you mind if I quote you? Because that's just <laughs> such a such a nice message to, to get. And also um, in a little um, posted in a in a Facebook group of lots of mainly American uh, worship leaders and um, music directors and so on uh, was Rachel, who we know, who you know, Sam, who you have interviewed. Well, We've interviewed her for this podcast. Like, yeah. Go back and listen to Rachel Wilhelm's interview. Yeah. Interview if you haven't already. <laughs> and she said, I just got my CD in the mail and I've been listening to it in the car. These songs are truly good for Sundays. Not boring, interesting, beautiful, theologically sound and gang vocaled in places so you can imagine your people singing it. Great work, Razan Worship. Totally impressed. Americans take heed. Blimey. That's nice. Thanks, Rachel. Yeah, yeah thank that's very you. Kind. I, I love that expression, "gang vocaled that she used. Yeah, that sums us up quite a lot, actually. I think that was a that was really deliberate. We wanted this to be about gang gang vocaling. That yes. might be our might be our thing from now on. It also led to this kind of uh, the the sort of ensuing post and various people in looked had a listen and commented and so on. And one guy was saying, "So, you know, this communion is that like a weird dialect thing? <laughs> what do they say? Communion." Well, it might, yeah. Welcome to a communion. Hey, are you guys having communion? Or maybe the- communion. <laughs> That's fine. There's an I in it. It's I definitely know, there. But it's definitely got communion. four syllables. Communion. Yeah. So I realised, yeah. of course, no, that um, my song. Your, it, commun- it's your song, isn't it? Communion oh, that's all right. and union. They'll just have to. Doesn't work in America. Doesn't work in Australia. Probably doesn't work in Scotland. Just about I mean, works they, in the home counties. They don't think that there's an H in the word herbs. So I'm not sure that we can trust them for pronunciation. <laughs> have you ever heard that? I have heard. I think they they say but, herbs. See, but is that yeah? Herbs and spices. Herbs, herbs. <laughs> um, so <laughs> how to alienate all of our American listeners? Yes, uh, we could only apologise. Uh, that really, and, and also that wasn't my best American accent. I was deliberately putting on a bad one. I could convince you if I wanted. Uh, I couldn't. Angela on email. This is good. Uh, she says, I just thought I'd say that unlike the Christmas songs album, which was an immediately love album, although my initial response to Songs of the Sundays was not sure, it's much mm-hmm. more of a slow grower. And now several of the melodies keep popping up in my head. Good job. Thank you, Angela. I think I've had one or two responses like that as well. And um, I guess I suppose there's a bit of me that wants everyone to say, oh, wow, this is amazing. Fantastic. But I think the very nature of what we've done means that we uh, sort of defy people's expectations when they put the CD on the first time. And it it should be different, shouldn't it? Yeah. Like an album that you will put on and listen to, which I think is a perfectly, you know, justifiable aim to have an album that people will just put on and listen to. But I think this was so intended to be, can be played and sung by a normal church that it is going to be different. 
Yeah. So I, I don't see that as a criticism, and I don't think she intended it like that. No, no, no. I, th- I think you're absolutely right. Um, and then finally, Mark on Twitter. This is my favourite one. Mark on Twitter said, "My chat <laughs> said my chat with Sam Hargrove of Resound Worship about Nine Beats and other curiosities with a link." So I feel less bad now that I got Heather Lynn wrong. As <laughs> two, me and Mark Scandrick were like we're like that. You're like buddies with yeah. Sam Hargrove. He, he even has a pet name for me. He calls me Hargrove. Hey, Hargrove. Yeah, it's like that. Here we go. That'll do. That's the end of the correspondence. So today Mark's. 500 years since Martin Luther kicked off the whole Reformation. And uh, so we thought we would speak to an expert. Matthew Nell, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. Welcome. Pleasure to be here. Um, Now, just to tell uh, listeners who you are, you are a a lecturer in church history and... uh, Something like that, isn't it? Tell us, what, what is your, what's your official title? Historical theology and, and church history with an emphasis on historical theology, which is basically the history of Christian thought and the progression of Christian thought through the ages. So you have Goodness. to bear in mind, you have to bear in mind the historical context in which the thought is happening. It only makes sense within that context, but I, I focus on the thought of the church. Great. Wow. And that's, so that's actually covering sort of, in terms of history, we're talking 2000 years do you yeah, have a my, particular period that's your specialism? My speciality is medieval uh, period, mm. so uh, that's where I've concentrated most of my studies above, above everything else. But I teach patristics, I teach the, the, the church fathers, the earliest church, um, and I'm uh, currently writing a, a, a work on sin, grace and, three w- and free will, which goes through the full 2,000 years. So uh, I'm currently, wow. th- last summer I read through the entire works of the Protestant reformers and a few of the key medieval thinkers um, in uh, in regards to that. So, Oh, fantastic. Well, you sound like a perfect person then for us to speak to. So on this um, historic 500-year um, celebration day, yep. um, so we're going to talk about the Reformation, particularly about Luther and his contribution to Christian song. But maybe um, maybe just kick us off you know, in real brief terms. What is the Reformation and maybe what isn't the Reformation? Wow. Uh, I'm, I'm teaching a lot on this, and I have to say I'm, I'm not very happy with what I, a lot of what I'm hearing uh, around the anniversary, um, which seems to be celebrating a division of the church rather than a reformation of the church. Mm. And for the original reformers, it's very clear that what they are wanting to do is to reform the church. And that doesn't mean cutting out everything that's gone before and going back just to the Bible. It means trying to, to get back to what is the, the true Christian faith. And how is that uh, Christian faith um, coming out of the Bible, but then how is it expressed in society and how isn't it expressed in society? And where the church has extended too far beyond the tradition of the church and the teachings of the scriptures in seeking to minister or, in their views at times, uh, corrupt or influence incorrectly the society of which they were a part. So it, it is it should be a reformation of the church back to its core teachings Hmm. and uh, so nothing of that the reformers were doing was supposed to be new to the catholic church of the time Um, and very little of what they said was uh, not held somewhere within the catholic church of the the late medieval period but it certainly wasn't what a lot of lay christians were hearing it wasn't what they had experienced and so they felt there was a, a real need for reform and uh, ultimately they felt that the papacy itself was not willing to listen to these calls for reform. Um, mm. But it, it wasn't a sense of, of cutting themselves off from the church because there is only one church. And um, are we right to, to bring it uh, to sort of home in on this one particular day and um, the, the, the famous theses on the door? Uh, to a certain extent, I mean, it is, it is the event which kicks off a whole movement, but... Uh, when I've been studying the Reformation, I think it's it's a very bad term. There were at least seven separate Reformations <laughs> in the first half of the of the 16th century alone, and often the reformers would argue as much with other Protestant groups as they would with the Catholic Church. Right. Yeah. And Luther Luther is a classic example of this. Luther sits in the middle. He's not at an extreme on one end with the Catholic Church at the other end. Rather, in separating out and in criti- criticising certain elements of Catholic practice, uh, he's trying to, to 
resettle a, a very solid Catholic theology. And the first thing you notice when you read Luther is is how Catholic he is in his teachings. Mm. And very quickly, he when he's in uh, exile, he loses control of the uh, the German Reformation in Wittenberg, which is taken over by one of his disciples, Andreas von Karlstadt. And Luther and Karlstadt falls out. And if you read Luther's theological works, he writes at least as much against Karlstadt as he does against the Catholics. Um because he has much more in common with the Catholics who are, are, are generally speaking, more in line with the historic tradition of the Church, where Karstadt is seeking to be much more radical. So he's part of what's called the Radical Reformation that hmm. Luther and Calvin and Zwingli all had major uh, issues with. They were seeking to reform the Church. Yeah. Um, and the, the only issues on which they were fully in common was um, denying the authority of the papacy in terms of doctrinal matters, and the issue of transubstantiation in, in communion on pretty much everything else. There were nuances and, and varied views, and they, they agreed with a lot of Catholics. I mean, even Justification by Faith, the great banner headline, there was an, a, an agreement between Lutherans and the Catholics in 1541 at Regensburg on that issue, and Regensburg fails not because of Justification by Faith, but because of transubstantiation and papal authority again. How interesting. Gosh, uh, I'm already realising we could spend the whole time on yes. on that. So, <laughs> well, let's 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 go to Luther because I'm I, you know I'm I'm by no means an expert on this, but I know that Luther is a, is a very important figure in terms of the development of Christian hymnody and Christian song and music in church and so on. So, can you sort of introduce us to that idea? I mean, if you had to kind of pin down what is his contribution? Yes. Um, well, the first thing to say is that for for Luther, music is a gift of God. And so I've got a couple of quotes here for you. Music is a fair and lovely gift of God, which has often wakened and moved me to the joy of preaching. Music drives away the devil and makes people happy. They forget all wrath, unchastity, arrogance and the like. Next, after theology, I give to music the highest place and the greatest honour. And uh, slightly more bluntly, a person who does not regard music as a marvellous creation of God must be a clodhopper indeed and does not deserve to be called a human being. He should be permitted to hear nothing but the braying of asses and the grunting of hogs. So clearly there's a, a very high spiritual aspect to music for Luther. Um, and it is, it is key to, to who he is. And, and we'll see a, a distinction w between Luther and uh, other reformers uh, on that basis. But it does lead to him uh, engaging very heavily with music as he seeks to reform music in the church. Um, he, he wants, above all, the, the church services, the liturgy of the church, to be understandable to everybody, regardless of education and linguistic ability. And so um, two, two major things he does within that. The, the biggest thing is to translate the Mass into, into German, rather than it being yeah. in Latin. Uh, and then he, he simplifies the particular chants that happen within the church. Because uh, often they, they were these very complex Gregorian chants, multitonal chants, where even one word would have uh, several tones associated with it and it would drag on. It would be difficult to really hear the words. Mm. And so Luther, in terms of the, the core of the liturgy, he, uh, he tries to, to have a single tone for a single word and each word as being more clearly expressed. And this would include the readings from, from Scripture, which would generally still be chanted, uh, by Luther, um, and uh, it's been pointed out it might have been better for him just to say, read them rather than sing them. Yeah. But yeah. the architecture of the church was was such that actually song communicates. It was easier to hear song than it was to hear spoken word, and this is one of the reasons why Luther retains it quite so highly. Um, he does include um, music, so instruments are are a key part of of the music that he not only writes. Um, but uh, also the, the music that he receives from others. It's unclear how much Luther wrote himself in terms of the actual music. Uh, we know of at least ten, but uh, it, it may be that he wasn't writing quite as much mu music and may have borrowed some. Um, mm. And particularly when we get into the, the choral stuff, uh, he believed in the power of choral singing for conveying the majesty of God in, uh, in services. And so he would often borrow... Um, music from straight, straight out uh, right from, from Catholic congregations particularly in the Netherlands there was some wonderful choral singing happening in Catholic churches in the Netherlands and um, 
unrepentingly, because I, I don't think in Luther's mind he would have distinguished himself from the Catholic Church, from mm. from Rome, yes, but not from the Catholic Church. He borrows their, their tunes and, and uses them in his own music quite extensively. So I think I've, as I've understood it, and you probably correct me here, is that he was in a context where there was very little music in church or very little singing or certainly congregational singing. Is that right? Or is that one of those things that's attributed to him that's not really his... The congregational is, is correct. There wasn't much hmm. congregational singing, but, um, I mean, if you've ever been to a monastery, I, I go to a, a monastery quite regularly, then the entire service is sung. Hmm. And so okay. it would be yeah. normal that, that particularly something like Evensong is a, is a sung service um, called Vespers in, uh, in the traditional churches. Um, and it is, it is completely sung, and it's still sung even to this day, and in many places it's still sung in Latin. Uh, to yeah. this day, so that that doesn't uh, change greatly. As I say, he simplifies the singing. He does include more congregational singing, although I think we need to be slightly clear about what's going on there. Um, a lot of what he he adds in are congregations joining in with the priestly liturgy. Um, so where the the creed would have been sung by the the priest alone, the congregation are encouraged to join in. Um, it's unclear whether Luther's services would have had what we would understand as a portion of congregational sung worship in them, yeah. because he, he does still have the liturgy. I mean, he updates the liturgy. Uh, he changes some of the theology of the liturgy. He takes out some of the sacrificial elements uh, of the Mass because he's uncomfortable with that. But it is still a very strong, very coherent liturgy which people go through, and there's no place in that liturgy for us to just stand up and have a, have a sing-song together. Uh, so the songs that he's singing um, are in, to help people to understand their faith. He would have um, rehearsals during the week where the whole congregation was expected to turn up uh, wow. and learn the hymns. And families were encouraged to sing these hymns uh, around the table uh, together. Yeah. because um, uh, and, and children are trained. The, the choirs are very professionally trained. Um, so, so that's going on. But I'm not sure that we, we're suddenly switching from a... A liturgical service to a very open, charismatic. Yeah. You know, let's let's sing this hymn through a couple of times. Absolutely. The level of congregational singing probably would have changed very much from church to church. Luther does allow a certain amount of flexibility in the liturgy. But I mean, it's the teaching that comes through in the songs. That's why he wants people to be singing these songs. Yeah. So there was a Jesuit priest who said that Luther had killed more souls through his hymns than through his sermons. Nice. Because of the power of the communication through sung worship. Yeah. That's, a, that's not a review that you want, I don't think. As a, as Generally a speaking, it doesn't go on the album cover uh, when, you, when you publish your latest work. <laughs> that's right. What was... Uh, uh, in term, you mentioned how the, uh, lots of the reformers uh, disagreed on as much as they agreed on, or even more than they agreed on. Yeah. In terms of their views of music, I, mean, I suppose Calvin is probably the, perhaps the most well-known counterpoint to Luther... Uh, Although Calvin does allow for for music, mm. um, but I think behind that is a, a wariness of Augustine, because Augustine was worried about uh, the use of music. Uh, in his Confessions, uh, he says that if you're if there's music, particularly with accompaniment, uh, in church, then it's, da it's there's a danger that our ears are more intent on the music uh, than on the spiritual meaning of the words. Hmm. And so Augustine says that the fear of, the, of this danger means that he, he would prefer not to have music in church because the music becomes an end rather than the worship of God. So, so that's in the background. Luther outright rejects that teaching of Augustine. He simply de denies that. Uh, Calvin bears it in mind, but he does uh, say, here's a couple of quotes from Calvin... If singing is tempered to a gravity befitting the presence of God and angels, it gives both dignity and grace to sacred actions and has a powerful tendency to stir up the mind to true zeal and ardour in prayer. Or another one, if moderation is used, there cannot be a doubt that the practice is sacred and, and welcome. On the other hand, songs composed merely to tickle and delight the ear are unbecoming the majesty of the church and cannot be but most displeasing to God. Mm. So that's that's the worry for for Calvin, um, which is not one. Zwingli again. Zwingli is 
is it has a different approach to the Reformation, and part of this is behind each of the different thinkers. Luther is is what's called a Renaissance humanist, so he he's wanting to to subject the 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 fact of the church, which the, which the Catholics don't want questioned, to to a, a critical engagement and say, well, you know, you're teaching this, you've got to have a good reason to teach this. Mm. Uh, and so he's not looking for a massive change, he's just looking to, to, to critique it a bit. Zwingli is a, a, a biblical humanist, so he wants to subject everything very much down to scripture um, yeah. in a much more radical way. Uh, and so he, and to a certain extent Calvin, are much more suspicious of anything which could create idolatry. And both of them have this this uh, phrase that the finite cannot contain the infinite mm. which the Catholics and Luther would disagree with. The Catholics and Luther would say that God is able to be present in the finite um, and so they would have a higher view of, of uh, communion, uh, a higher view of all sorts of aspects of the church whereas for, for Zwingli and Calvin the finite cannot contain the infinite and therefore images and music are dangerous because God cannot be contained in a song or in a piece of artwork. And what you end up with, with, with both forms of communication, particularly for Zwingli, is idolatry. You worship the, the song itself rather than the infinite God. You're, mm. you're containing him within, within the, the music. So mm. that's... Calvin is, is much more positive, and certainly with the Psalms, Cal, Calvin is very happy with singing the Psalms. The Genevan Psalter is a very famous uh, piece of music. Um, outside of the Psalms, there's very little. Calvin doesn't like singing anything which isn't really a song in Scripture. Um, even other right. parts of Scripture being put into songs, he's a little bit more wary of. And the other big difference between Calvin Zwing and Zwingli and Luther is that Luther loves the instruments and loves the glory that the instruments bring, whereas both Calvin and Zwingli um, uh, smashed up instruments. They, you weren't allowed to have instrumental yeah. support. And one of the things that the Calvinists uh, are most noted for as they spread across Europe, particularly in Holland, um, is that they would go into churches and smash the organs um, as a, a, a form of idolatry, as a... yeah. Wow. This major issue that they would have Gosh. with it. So just kind of ju jumping forward to our context today, it's interesting thinking in terms of, you know, your, a lot of your work is digging into the context of theology historically, but obviously you exist in a context, and we both do, in yep. our kind of contemporary church, broad as it may be. And I, I wonder how would you, um, ha maybe it's asking a lot, but ha how you can imagine we might apply some of Luther's thinking or approach to how we do music and worship in the church today? Yeah, I mean, it depends slightly on the background that you you come from. I th I think there is that uh, that slightly old evangelical approach in particular that has this uh, suspicion of creativity, um, and I it comes largely out of the Twingley Calvin stuff, but it's it's been extended well beyond where they were. Um, and I would want to listen to Luther about the majesty of of God in creation and something about the, the the beauty of the creativity of the image of God in humankind. Mm. Uh, so I, I I love that idea that music can in, encapsulate something of the majesty of God that, that the spoken word uh, cannot do. So I, I think there is a, a lot to be said for, for recapturing uh, a more Lutheran approach rather than a more reformed approach uh, that is suspicious of that kind of creativity. And we need to be aware that um, with any kind of spiritual practice or spiritual discipline, uh, they can all be misused. Mm. Um, whether they're good or, or bad in themselves, uh, it's possible to misuse them. You know, a simple discipline like fasting uh, can be a, a very good spiritual practice or it can become quite a, a destructive practice. And that would be true mm. of anything, including music. So I think we need to, to reflect on what is the, the purpose and the role of music in worship um, and I, I think th the key is that it has to be done to the glory of God mm. and that that doesn't mean that it's it's done in one style necessarily but I think when you're when you're working in different styles and particularly with a modern uh, popular charismatic worship uh, I think there is a, a point of listening to Calvin's uh, approach of saying well don't anything about the words, but what image of God are you communicating in this worship? 
and we have quite a generally quite a low view of worship in in a lot of churches uh, a low view of god today in a lot of churches you know he's my friend he's my brother i can chat to him in the shower this kind of stuff uh and there's there are truths within that because of you know incarnation he comes he is with us present with us by his spirit yeah, but yeah. there's a danger that, that if that is is the sum total of our the content of our singing and the style of our singing that we lose something of the majesty of God and the awe of God and the respect that is due to the creator of the universe. Um, and we end up with this, this very low view of God, and particularly in, in churches that don't have um, architecture or, or artwork which, which seek to elevate the mind, elevate the heart, and, and place the, 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 pers- the human person in a, a humble position before God. Um, mm. I mean, there are other aspects that come into this. There, there's things like the, the body posture. Um, if we're always standing when we're singing and lifting up our hands, then then there's a, there's a form of worship there, but there's another form of worship if we're called to be on our knees mm. um, before God. So it's, it's simply a case of recognizing that, that God is both the great almighty one and yet he is here present uh, and loves us. And there are these, these tensions which... No church is going to be able to fully encompass the range. But we need to be aware that when we're choosing songs and choosing styles of worship, we are calling we are we are calling people to a certain perspective of God, and a certain aspect of God is being emphasized that has great strengths and great richnesses. But if that's all they're getting, then they're going to miss out on other aspects of who God is and how they relate to him. Mm. Matt, it's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you. We're gonna, we've we've run out of time, um, and I feel like there's so much more we could speak about. But um, really appreciate you uh, giving us some kind of some nuggets from your experience and knowledge, and um, helping us think a bit more about Luther on this uh, Reformation Day. Thank you. Thank you very much. We're going to respond to Luther by um, thinking about how we write songs in the vernacular. So, um, Sam, kick us off, please, by telling us what the vernacular is. Um, means like normal speech, doesn't it? Yeah, I think so. I think. So I guess, you know, we heard a bit about Luther. Um, you know, one of the things is is having the Bible in German rather than Latin. He was big on that. Which I have uh, to say, before. I haven't found that helpful. I still can't read it. <laughs> you should just work on your German. Uh, but, you know, there is this thing, isn't there, that, I mean, you, you probably know better than me, Joel, but that the Bible itself, the New Testament, was written not in the kind of fancy Greek, but in this kind of everyday earthy Koine Greek. And for a while, people were a bit kind of, you know, nervous about that or kind of ashamed almost that the Bible was written in this slightly naff Greek. And then it occurred to people, hang on, that means that they were writing it in the average language of the average person. And I think ever since then, we've had this habit of trying to kind of elevate our speech by adding things that sound old or things that sound fancy or things that sound spiritual. Yeah. Um, And I've got a feeling that that happens in in worship songs and in worship as well. I think it does. I mean, in sort of today's worship, I suppose two of the most common versions would be either to sing older things, particularly older hymns I suppose and sing archaic mm. language, doesn't really mean anything to anybody um, or, or it does if you're in the club because you've learnt it yeah. and you know it's part of the language yeah. of the club, or actually at the complete opposite end of the spectrum to, to use kind of in language of today's contemporary worshipper and speak yeah. a lot about storms and oceans and other climactic events um, <laughs> or, or other yeah. stuff, which is a, all of which sort of becomes a bit of a code, which yeah. uh, those who are leading understand and those who are in understand, but can actually be a, quite a barrier um, to anyone who's, who just speaks normal, speaks normally out on the street out there. And and another version I was thinking is actually having, in a sense, having songs that say very little, that have such a limited linguistic palette, hmm. that actually the only way really to connect them to the deep complexities of your faith is to know quite a lot in the first, there's so much that's unspoken in a very, very simple language. Hmm. So it, that also can have a, a kind of impenetrability to it because it doesn't really yeah. set anything up front. It's just it's all a response, if you like. So it's all a response. But you never yeah. know what you're responding to. Um, <laughs> but it's so um, so Luther kind of kicked this 
thing off in quite a big way. But there have been certain kind of signposts, haven't there, through the centuries since then. Yeah, I was thinking about Isaac Watts a little bit and how he, um, as a British hymn writer, kind of took really the... I mean, he was a Calvinist himself. Um, so, um, you know, Matt mentioned about Calvin having, you know, this kind of... He would only want the the psalms sung and he would only want them sung just with voices and Luther was, you know, much more permissive in including other types of hymns and writing hymns himself and including instruments and things. Um, and Watts grew up in that kind of Calvinistic um, place, but was really frustrated with it and was really frustrated with the the bad um, psalm singing that he heard. In fact, uh, at one point he, he was complaining in his church as a young man and someone turned around to him and said, well, you write something better then. Ah. And so I think Watts kind of went away and went, okay, um, and so they call Watts the the kind of father of British hymnody because he was really the first person in Britain to be writing stuff in what at the time was modern day English and mm. saying things that were um, biblical in the widest sense of inspired by the Bible and the, the Bible's themes and the Bible's theology, but weren't necessarily direct quotes from the Bible, weren't necessarily setting a a text from the Bible, the Psalms in particular, but he was actually, you know, taking biblical theology and writing something like When I Survey the Wondrous Cross or Joy to the World. And then after that in Britain, we come to what is called the hymn explosion, the British hymn explosion, which uh, happened around the 1960s in Britain. Um, and this includes people like Fred Pratt Green yeah. and Fred Kahn, um, later, people like Timothy Dudley Smith, Dudley, uh, <laughs> Timothy Dudley, <laughs> Timothy Dudley Smith, and Chris Idle, um, and basically the, the, they they saw themselves as continuing in kind of Isaac Watts' kind of idea. So I've got a quote here from uh, Fred Pratt Green where he says. Isaac Watts in the first half of the 18th century and Fred Kahn in the middle of the 20th began to write hymns for their own congregations because they felt the need to revitalise worship through hymn singing by expressing Christian insights old and new in contemporary language. The time was opportune and the need was imperative. So you, you kind of you had people um, singing a lot of these and thous, that kind mm. of archaic language, and these guys said, no, hang on, you know, we don't speak like that anymore. We love these hymns. But um, and a good example is that the, the New English Bible came out in 1961, and that was one of the first translations to to not be these and thous right. and to use what's called dynamic equivalence. So rather than you know say well what's the closest word we can find to say well what's actually the, the equivalent today, mm. it was kind of like the message of its day. If you know the Message Bible, yeah, um, you know. So you take something like the Magnificat, Mary's song. Uh, and the King James Version says, My soul doth magnify the Lord, and my spirit hath rejoiced in God my Saviour, for he hath regardeth the lowest state of his handmaiden. And that's, he goes on like that. Yeah. Whereas actually the New English says, Tell out my soul the greatness of the Lord. Rejoice, rejoice, my spirit in God my Saviour. So tenderly he has looked upon his servant, humble as she is. And it's, it's that real uh, difference between something which feels to us quite archaic mm. and something which feels quite normal and everyday and still maybe has a poetry to it or has a, a grandeur to it but it's just more familiar to us and uh, Timothy Dudley Smith um, took that translation and he thought wow that is amazing I should I should write a hymn out of that so he wrote the famous hymn tell out my soul the greatness of the Lord How literally from picking up the New English Bible I yeah. never knew that did you not no I didn't I did not well, know there that you go but I know that I mean I know about Timothy and his, so his connection with our forebears in in Rizand as um, part of what of Jubilate and what previously was was Youth Praise, which was a yeah. same thing, a collection of um, clergymen who most of all whom had youth groups, basically saying we need to put this, we need to put worship into the language of the young people of today, and not just the the spoken language, but the musical language of the young people of yeah. today, and and so writing for that they did um uh that that led on to probably one of the, the more controversial things that um jubilate have done which um people in the uk may may know which is that blue hymn book hymns for today's church where mm. they took hundreds of hymns and they did what they called invisible mending um to to go through and essentially try and up i mean that the argument was that was the same what you said basically that 
we translated the Bible into contemporary language, but why do mm. we keep singing these these things in old language? People, it's great for the people who are in, but people from the outside come in and think, I've got no idea what this means. It doesn't mean anything to me. Um, and um, suddenly you have to change your language to be in church. Um, and so they, they came up with this thing, Hymns for Today's Church, which contains loads, I mean, just loads and loads of re- rewritten versions of... Um, classic hymns unfortunately what i mean there was a lot of kickback for that wasn't there yeah yeah and a lot a lot of people you know desperately refused to sing those you know you've messed around with it someone came up to me once and said would you you know draw a hat on the mona lisa to make her look more modern and i was like what's he talking (laughs) about you know and she said well that's what you've done with that hymn that i love you've you've tried to modernize it and you've ruined it it's a it's a work of art and the problem with that idea, I mean, I do understand being sensitive to the fact that some of these are, you know, people's memories mm-hmm. and they're their childhood or what they've grown up with. And I, I really sympathise with that. But the truth is that these hymns have changed, haven't they, over the years? Mm. Um, we we looked, I think, in our very first podcast at Hark the Herald Angels Sing. And that was that is not what how we sing it today. And if we sang the original, it would be like yonder how the welkin rings or yeah. something yeah. completely useless today. Um and so we have to realise that in some ways they're works of art, but they're also um, they're public acts of worship. That's, you know, they, they don't just belong to one generation or one writer. They're actually, they actually need to have a life and to live if they're going to, you know, and, and that involves some change and some growth, I think. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's a toughie, but I have absolute respect for Jubilate for, for, for doing that. And I definitely use a lot of their revisions um, you know, and there's there's some things that I just don't I don't want to revise. Be that my vision. I think it's better as it is. But um, you know, um, their their version of praise to the Lord the Almighty, yeah, uh, great is your faithfulness, things like that. I use all the time. I like all hail the power of Jesus' name. That's the one that I'm I've often used. There's there's, yeah. there's no wormwood and gall and um, diadems and oh, excellent other stuff in there. <laughs> but I do. Understand, I mean, I know there'll be people listening to us now just going, "Oh, that's terrible." It's kind of oh, it's dumbing down. Or it's it's very difficult to separate your own sense of personal kind of emotional connection to something, isn't it? And, yeah. and the fact that it has resonance and meaning for you, not simply because of its um, objective beauty or objective quality, but because of mm. your experience of it. So if you were presented with all these hymns for the first time and you never knew the the older versions of them, um, could you then engage with them in, in, in much the same way? Maybe. Mm. I'd say it's a toughie because I have that same sort of thing. I love singing. Uh, there's something about, sometimes it's about old language, which I think particularly for stuff that is more kind of regal, respectful, that's mm. been the thing that's mm. been hardest to let go of, I think, hasn't it? In terms of addressing or describing God, feeling actually by using language of tradition somehow it's it has a higher elevation and language of the street belongs in the street yeah and that's why i would advocate a a mix really you know i I think if i'm if i look at the songs i pick over a a month or so in in church i i would probably want to have a bit of a mix and and you know occasionally use some old language because it does give us a bit of historical rootedness and possibly gives us a bit of you know of gravitas um but then i would also want to make sure there's a lot of stuff that was accessible i know noel tradinic um also involved with jubilate he talks about the fact that they have a lot of overseas students yeah at all souls and he says you know for someone whose first language is chinese or you know pakistani or whatever to come to london and to have to sing a load of these and thous and you know diadems and celestial balls yeah um it, it's really it really is a barrier so it's contextual, but I, I, I think we should at least allow people, you know, the opportunity to try, and we don't have to use that those updated ones, but I, I, to try and write some of this stuff in the vernacular can can really bring it to life. I think. Yeah. So um, let's think about how we might put some of this into practice. Um, and and I was just kind of thinking about, I mean, there are pitfalls, aren't there? <coughs> some of the one thing that happens when you try and use very contemporary language is you quickly end up with something that sounds like a children's song. Yeah. Yeah, we've talked about this before, haven't we? You know, Higher Than a Skyscraper and Deeper Than a Submarine works as an all-age song. If, um, you know, he tried to put that out as a as a, as a a purely adult song, maybe it wouldn't. But um, there's, there's one aspect of this that 
we came across when we were doing our whole life worship book um some of the people uh listening to this will have read nick page's book and now let's move into a time of nonsense yeah and uh, nick points out that actually he could find no modern worship songs or no songs that we sing with a modern image in it an image that could only have come from the 20th century so he talks about the fact that we use a kind of christianized code so instead of saying money which we're all familiar with we say silver and gold yeah or you know we're happy to talk about shepherds in fields but how many of us have experiences of shepherds or fields um you know if we're in inner city church and he argues that the problem with this is that worship becomes detached from real life and he says you know if if we do it um you know it can become a kind of escapism into a kind of a false a false reality and he says worship has to be real it has to reflect and draw on the reality that surrounds it. it has to be connected to real life because worship is real life and i think that that is a really good challenge and certainly for us as we're thinking about whole life worship you know to have some language and some references to things that are everyday or normal challenges so money family work uh, and not to wrap those up in a kind of pseudo christian language but actually to try and i tried to do this um in my song in the light of your mercy yeah we put out last year and to have like really connect you know really connect it with um everyday things you know work our dreams and our plans um you know our kind of just just to really make it rooted as much as i could the the other um thing that that we can kind of learn from that hymn explosion i think is that they did try and address some of these things things like for example science um you know this is a this is a challenge that we can only really you know it's only really come to the fore in the last couple of hundred years that science is so prevalent and has made so many advances and technology is so you know advancing all the time and actually we we can be left behind our, the language of our songs can be left behind with that but uh i know there was a, a really good example of this um by albert f bailey mm. who was an early um hymn pioneer um and he wrote this song O lord of every shining constellation wheels and splendor through the midnight sky grant us your spirit's true illumination to read the secrets of your work on high you lord have made the atoms hidden forces your laws its mighty energies fulfill teach us to whom you give such rich resources in all we use to serve your holy will and it kind of goes on like that talking it uses language like cell and tissue um and it just really tries to engage with some of those scientific questions and say yes we can use this language of cells and atoms and um but and yet you know god is the creator of all that and i think that that is a that's a good model and a good challenge for us today to try and really engage with some of the you know the very real issues around us today and the things that people you know engage with every day in their lives mm. it's interesting listening to that that the um the words that are used there are words that have a in a sense have a very current meaning but they're not necessarily new words and this is something i remember learning a while back and, and i do try and apply it when i'm writing songs particularly if i'm trying to engage with something which i think is a more difficult um or, or more untapped theme uh um, it goes all the way. There's this famous quote from Winston Churchill, which you've probably seen or I may have mentioned before. Um, who knows if Churchill even said it, actually. But it's about <laughs> writing or about giving speeches. And he said, short words are the best and old words, when they are short, are best of all. Which is a very <laughs> clever quote because they're all one syllable words and they're uh. all old words. And the thing is that the vernacular language, just the, the, the modern language of the people is full of short old words and what you find is that the the newer and the longer you go with your words the more they stick out like a sore thumb in a in a song or in a piece of poetry or uh, particularly mm. in poetry um a lot of newer more technical words are quite are actually quite ugly in a in a sense but you yeah. can often express the same sort of thing by using words which are not archaic they're just very well established and i think that's yeah. a so you don't need to use faddish 
or the latest words that have just, you know, the list of the new words in the Oxford Dictionary or whatever it might be, mm. in order to be contemporary, in order to be speaking the language of the people. The language of the people is actually full of words which have been there for a long time. And very often, if you can use a lot of those, and, and, and I don't... Yeah, somebody else again might know this more, but it is—it's one of those things in writing and in poetry that actually, if you can keep them shorter and shorter, once you get into the really long ones, they start to not only do they tend to be words which have kind of developed and had bits added to them, so they in themselves have a kind of awkwardness to them, um, but mm. then you can sing in the voice of the people without without necessarily falling into that pitfall which you, which you can do which is either that it sounds like a children's song or it sounds like the rhymes are very contrived in order to, to fit the words in or just has a kind of uh, ugliness to the poetry yeah i mean we're definitely not looking for yo jesus mate how you doing mm. you know what, what what's going on there what's you know what's going down um <laughs> so there's there's a kind of there's a balance isn't there and there's a there's a creativity involved in this, I think, in, yes. ter- in, in terms of trying to, you know, really search for words that are beautiful and deep and meaningful, but also aren't, you know, are, are understandable at the same time. I think a really good example of this, I don't know what you think about this song, Joel, but there's this new Hillsong song called So Will I. Mm. Um, and again, you know, talking about science, this seems to really want to engage with that in a way that I think you know is a bit of a probably not knowingly but it it's a bit of a follow-on from that Albert Bailey uh, hymn because it says God at the creation there at the start before the beginning of time with no point of reference you spoke to the dark and fleshed out the wonder of light that kind of no point of reference I think is a really clever phrase for kind of you know creation out of nothing mm. um, and it's it really sort of draws you into the song and then it has this brilliant structure um, in the way that the verses start, God of creation, God of your promise. And then it's in the chorus, it's got this, and as you speak, a hundred billion galaxies are born. Um, and it talks about, and if creation sings your praise, so will I. And then the next chorus is, as you speak, a hundred billion creatures catch your breath, evolving in pursuit of what you've said. Um Every painted sky, a canvas of your grace. If creation still obeys, so will I. So it's the first verse is kind of creation being born. This is creation continuing to be upheld by God. And then right at the end, it's the the, the last verse is God of salvation. You chase down my heart. Uh, and the, the chorus, as you speak, a hundred billion failures disappear. You lost your life so I could find it here. Um, and then somebody pointed out to me that it says... Um, it's got this hundred billion all the way through. And then at the last verse, it says eight billion different ways. And you could kind of go, well, that's a bit odd until you realise actually eight billion is the amount of people on the planet right now. Yeah. Um, so it, I don't know. It, I, I mean, I was listening to it musically and I, I don't think it's the strongest thing I've ever heard musically, but lyrically, I think it it shows a real craft and a real... Um, it's doing what we're talking about, I think, really well mm. uh, of, of of trying to engage with um, issues that are relevant right now, science, evolution, where do we come from, um, using this modern language and, and poetic language, uh, and yet still having a really kind of biblical heart to it and a kind of uh, the message of the, of the cross, I think, really comes across. Yes, it's a great example. Um, and I And I think as a great example of as you look through the language in it it, it is it's not technical jargonistic language mm, no but it's very no, it's just normal for the way we speak yeah. um, and I think that's taking language that is normal for the way we speak but constructing it in a way which gives it kind of poetic beauty and poignancy um, I think that's the skill that's the skill that we're looking for as songwriters Well, that's all we've got time for in this podcast. Um, we'd love to hear from you as usual. We'd love to hear if you know some um, other examples of uh, of worship songs which really use contemporary ideas or language in a way that really works or on um, anything that you want to ask or say or suggest or sing about uh, worship songwriting in general. Um, we're just going to leave you with a featured song and uh, we're going to keep on featuring one or two songs from the new Songs for Sundays album. And so this week I'm going to feature my own song, Sam. 
Communion. Mon- Communion, which has four syllables. Uh, uh, so I'd love to share this one with you. This was um, the second of my songs on the album. And it, 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 I mean, actually, the inspiration, I was thinking, I'd like to write a song for Communion. I literally went onto the, there's a place called uh, Net Hymnal, I think it is. And I just started browsing through the Communion hymns. And you just stole and one I lyric. I totally stole the whole thing. Um, <laughs> what, but I... Actually, I just called up some words and sat at the piano and started singing a few of the lines. And and, and it kind of formed into a shape, which quickly gave the shape of bread, wine, and then kind of being being sent out. And that seems to be a really common shape to a communion song. And there was a point where um, Matt helpfully pointed out that I'd stolen the tune from Shine Jesus Shine, which is sort <laughs> of about, about the most well-known worship song tune going. So I had to I had to restructure. You can see if you can work out which bit that was and how I Is it I the bit that goes, it. eat this bread. <laughs> That's the one, the clap. Eat this bread. Oh. Um, but then what I wanted to home in on was... The idea that communion is about us together with God. That's what's going on in this act. And sometimes, uh, we talked about this before, but worship can become very individualistic. Mm. Actually, communion can become individualistic. We all queue up, and I mean, it depends on your tradition. Uh, Even when we stand in a circle and pass it around, it can be quite a sort of a a personal encounter. And whilst that's true and that's real, actually the act of, you know, it says as you don't eat without recognising the body, um, Mm. And um, that that's us with the the gathered body of Christ, um, and the communion itself is a very corporate thing which enforces our identity as one. And so that's what I try to kind of hammer home as the thing that we celebrate in the chorus. And also, therefore, it's not completely quiet and gentle and poignant and 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 so on, but actually, it's supposed to have a certain kind of robustness to it. This is a this is a meal that we it's a sacrament, but it's a meal that we share, which. Um, is part of us being one in Christ and, and with him. Cool, man. Let's hear it. Jesus, you call us to this your table Meeting our hunger with living bread Now as we share in your broken body So
Until you come